Hey everybody, this is Keith Loy. I'm the founding senior pastor of Celebrate Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and this is our podcast. I just want to say thank you for joining us, and it is my prayer that this week's message will truly encourage you. Enjoy. I want you to welcome someone. This is, uh, many of you know him, many of you don't. This is my dad. Would you just welcome him? It's okay, we're going to have a conversation. Uh, my dad is uh, going on 82 years of age, and uh, I, uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, 62 years of ministry, and my dad just finished his first class as he's pursuing his doctorate in ministry. And so... So if you think you're too old, you need to get the let out of your butt and the love of, the, and the love of God in your heart, okay? Because it's never too late to learn. It's never too late to learn. And I'm so glad that I have a father who always taught me that. And uh, my glimpses of my dad growing up when I would go to his room at night, uh, because I don't know if you figure this out, mom and dad, your kids are always hurting when you're trying to go to sleep. Have you ever noticed that? And so I'd go into his room, and uh, without fail, he was always in a book. He was always reading, always reading. There's always something more to learn. And uh, that's why when I hear people say, well, I, I'm just not a good reader. Well, then try being a good listener, because you can get pretty much every book on tape. You know, it, technology has removed every excuse. If we're ignorant, it's because we chose to be ignorant. I'm just going to call it what it is. If you don't read, it's because you're lazy. I'm just going to call it what it is. I just want to. I just want to say that it's so, and that's not to attack anyone. Anybody can learn, and there's many ways that you can do it. I mean, my goodness, get picture books. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, you know, there's something in that to learn. But uh, I, I just love that. So I'm glad he's here. So, Dad, we're going we're gonna to back up the truck because I want some people to get to know you. Um, it's totally wild for me that you've been a big part of my life for so long. Felt like I knew everything about you. And then the last time you spoke and I was in the room, uh, I had my, my laptop up because I was working on a couple things while you were talking and listening. And then all of a sudden you started sharing some stuff and my head popped up and like, what is he talking about? So... I want to go back to, you were born in Kentucky, and uh, born in a barn. I, I, <laughs> yeah, tell that, tell that story, because it's true today. It wasn't really back then, but. Several years ago, my wife and I were in Kentucky for a family reunion, and I decided to go out and see the place where I was born. So, somebody had converted into a tobacco barn, you know, they have to hang the tobacco racks to cure over a period of time. So you were a smoking child I mean, <laughs> when you were born. <laughs> so a little while later, I said to my mom, I was born in a tobacco barn. Of course, that got a rise out of her. But So was it a house? It was your house before? Or, or? Born in a house. It became a tobacco barn later. <laughs> oh, it speaks volumes about your home. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so, but you're one of seven children 
But I, I want people to understand this because I'm one of seven. Uh, I came from a rather large, if you will, family. My, my mom's mom was one of 12. And uh, she became, I think, uh, one of five or six. Yes, six. she's one of six. And so family reunions were quite crazy. There's a lot of people running around. Her older um, sister is a surviving twin, so there would have been seven. Okay, so I didn't even know that. My dad, my dad was one of seven. Mom's one of seven? Yeah. Dorlane had a twin sister that died at birth. I did not know that. that is, wow, see? I did not know that. Wow, that's crazy. In Revelation, seven is perfection, so you come from a long line of perfection. Well. <laughs> that explains a lot, Dad. Um, <laughs> So you were born, and I want to say it again because I think you missed it, in the hills of Kentucky, which that's <laughs> why I like banjo music. Um, uh, only a few will get that. But, but you're one of seven, but here's some things that some people need to know. Two of them died at birth, and then you had a sister who was close to you who died at the age of 19. Muscular dystrophy. We didn't know what it was till just before she died. How many years apart were you guys? Two. Two. All right. And her name was Naomi. And, and so I say that because, you know, I, I, there's four of you living per se, but two, the two that died were older than you, correct? Right. Okay. Mom lost her first one, then I had my brother, and then lost her third, and then I had me. All right. Talk to me a little bit about Grandpa and Grandma. Just quickly, if you would. He was a teacher and a very intense man in so many ways. But talk a little bit about Grandpa and growing up as a child. My dad was um, very authoritarian. Uh, he could get away with that because all of my life at home, he did 70 military push-ups every morning. And then took dining room chairs and held them by the leg and did 100 of these before he started the day. We had a professional wrestler come to the house drunk one time to find his daughter and he cussed in the living room and dad told him not to do that. He informed dad he would say anything he wanted to so dad reached out to shake his hands. Later on he was converted, went into the ministry. His name was Clarence Giroux. He was Killer Giroux on TV in Flint. We were pastor school together and he said, do you remember that day I come to your house? And I said, yeah. He said, I went to the doctor the next day and he said, what did you do to your hand? He said, it's been crushed. He said, I wasn't about to tell him a Methodist preacher told me to quit cussing and I wouldn't do it. <laughs> but dad was very authoritarian, but he loved people. Um, I, of course, preached his funeral service, which was not a funeral. It was a celebration. And um, his district superintendent asked to say a few words. And he said, Peyton Loy was the rarest combination of soft, hard I ever saw. On questions of morality, granted hard and harder on himself than anybody else. But when it came to people... Soft, caring, compassionate. And so, we're, we're, I, this is a question I've never asked. I've tried to put the timeline together. Was your dad, he received his call in ministry after you were born? Yes. How old were you when that all took place? Um, I'm thinking two to three. Okay. And he was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. Yep. 
And then God really got a hold of High him. High school principal after one-room schools. All right. When did you develop your love for cars? Because people, I want you to hear this. This is, this is so uncanny for me because I, I know not one time that my dad, we're not driving down a road and he can tell you the make, the year, the car, anything about it. He would describe the dashboard and then he'd correct himself sometimes, go, okay, that wasn't a 60, that's a 68. And the reason why is a 67 on the taillights. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know, when did you develop your love for cars? When did that um, happen? Hated school when I was in grade school. <laughs> so that kind of ruined the whole perfect family spent a lot thing, of, didn't it? <laughs> a lot of time getting magazines out of the library and so forth. Um, as most of you know, I grew up in Winter, South Dakota before there was a driver's license. So I had the first motorbike when I was in seventh grade. Started building my first car with a hot engine when I was a junior in high school. Loved automobiles. Always have loved speed. Well, I know that you love automobiles because part of your, if you will, as a pastor and being a pastor's kid, I think in my entire life you always had a car that you were restoring. It was kind of, I think, your, your way of kind of unplugging from ministry, I think. Well, the first few years of ministry, I tried golfing, and for you golfers, I apologize ahead of time. I never did enough of it to get past the frustration stage, so I hated it. <laughs> um, I found out that uh, so I, I could want to buy stop a... there for a moment because <laughs> there that is a wonderful piece of wisdom for some of the some of the guys in this room, okay? Because <laughs> they're not past that that moment of frustration. And they never will be. You know, it, um, I've been with a few of them, and they know who I'm talking about. It's time to sell the clubs, okay? Um, so, well, go ahead. The, the last golf, uh, I, I, I shot a 31, and then on the second hole, it fell apart, so I quit. <laughs> that bad. <laughs> but I would go to those country parishes, and I'd find a car at the blown engine, and on my day off, I love to build engines because people that do that for a living, that's not restful. But when you're in the people business and you got to forget everybody and everything while you're mic and cranks and barrels and so forth, torque and bolts, that's restful. And I, so that's what I did all those years. Some may not know this, but you actually worked for General Motors for a couple of years, correct? Three years. For three years. Yeah, engine oh. engineering degree and then was called in the ministry. That's so cool to think about. We're going to come back to that one in a moment um, because there's some things about General Motors that are really some neat connections in our family. Um, I want you to tell a quick story. You mentioned real quickly you had a motorbike. Yep. I remember you telling me a story about a girl that you were trying to hit on, and you went, o and you went over with the motorbike. Well, when I was a <laughs> freshman, I got a Harley 80 cubic inch. Tilted over at a stop sign. Somebody had to come help me pick the dumb thing up because I couldn't do it by myself. And uh, when Vaughn Simpkins sold it to me, he told me, he said, this is the way you start it. Leave the ignition off. Retard the spark a little bit. Close the choke. Open the throttle halfway. Go up and come down with all your weight. Turn the ignition on. Leave it retarded slightly. Undo the choke. 
and this time you pull through. You don't just use your weight, because if you do, it'll hiccup and throw you over the handlebars. <laughs> so I went over to pick her up. She's standing there at the curb, and I'm going to impress her with this one. What he didn't tell me was, once in a while, for no reason, the pedal won't even engage. It'll just... My knee sounded like somebody popping their knuckles. <laughs> I said, go in the house. She said, what? I said, go in the house. <laughs> when she got in the house, I let out a howl. They heard clear up town, I think. So guys, I don't know when we got that bike home again. <laughs> that was one painful experience. <laughs> I love that story. I don't, I don't have that. I, I, well, forget it. Um, so, so. I want to come back to winter and and because you said something to me earlier to this morning that just it's so funny, um, but so you went from Kentucky, found your way, if you will, through Illinois out to winter South Dakota. Two years in uh, Indiana working in coal mining towns. Dad preached in that, and so I got to know that strata of society too. And then found yourself in winter. It's kind of where you did you grew up. Yep. And uh, spent a year in Millbank, South year Dakota. Year and a half. Year and a half. Okay. And then got out to Michigan. And I want you, if you would, just describe that relationship you had with your dad because you fell in love with the land in winter. Yeah. When you, a lot of guys here understand this. When you plow ground or chase cows on it, that gets a hold of you. And that becomes life. And as I told you this morning, <laughs> some people may or maybe understand this. My idea of heaven is driving from Chamberlain to Rapid City, South Dakota, across the wide open flat land of South Dakota. See, <laughs> when he said that to me, I busted a gut. That's my idea. Hell. Okay. Um, is, am I alone here? You know but I heard my dad said from Chamberlain to, to Rapid City, I was like, dude, you got to get out more. You know, <laughs> you were born in Kentucky. I've been there. It's beautiful. And I think one of the most beautiful states in, of the 50 states is, is Michigan, especially in the fall. Michigan is just unbelievable. And then you describe that as heaven. I was like, wow. You know, it, I, I just wanted you to hear that. Well, my old rancher friend came to Michigan to see us. Uh, I thought he'd love it. He got out of the car and I said, so how'd you like driving across the upper peninsula? He said, stinking trees, you can't see a thing. <laughs> so it's all in the eyes of the beholder. Yeah, you don't have that problem when you leave Chamberlain. You know, you're looking for the tree. You know? <laughs> no, when, when we moved to Winter, South Dakota, it was only 40 years old, 1949. State tree was a telephone pole. <laughs> <laughs> So you, but you developed a real affinity, if, if I could say that, for the Midwest. Because that's pretty much my home. That's where I grew up. Uh, you know, most people don't know I was born in Michigan, but when I was five, we ended up in 1970 in, in southern Nebraska. And this has been home. You know, it's been home for me. So, but, but when you got out to Michigan, there's, there's a little, you're having a little, if you will, you're, you and your dad aren't seeing eye to eye. I mean, no, I was. I drove the car the entire distance. I was very angry because I already made a deal with the rancher that I was going to go in partnership with him the following spring. Had all the plans laid out and everything. And uh, 
I remember I'd go through towns thinking, I wonder what this place is going to look like in a few months going that way. Dad would look over and he'd say, you're really mad, aren't you? And I'd explain that I was. He'd slap me on the leg and say, you're going to see some girl fall in love and forget all about South Dakota. Okay, we're going to come to that <laughs> because it's quite amazing. Um, but I, I want, the, I want the, the kids in this room to hear this. Because young people, I was a youth pastor for, for many, many years. And some of you young people chafe at your dad and the advice that he gives. But you fail to understand he knows something you don't know. And, and some of you young people, you're already silencing me right now. Because you, you've arrived. Which I'd love it if you're going to say that to get up here and you start speaking and telling everybody what needs to be said. I love young people. I loved being a youth pastor. I thought I'd do it all my life. But there's something about the wisdom of a father because your dad knew if he didn't step in. Tell that a little All bit. Right. Uh, Dad's reason for moving to Michigan was the grandparents in Kentucky were getting old. No expressways out here yet. To go home to see the grandparents was 4 o'clock Monday morning, all day, all night, all day, and midnight on Tuesday we'd get in there. It was a killer, 1,500 miles. And I believe every highway in Iowa takes three square turns. You can't make time. Dad said, we got to get closer. What he left unsaid was, if I don't get a Glenn away from that rancher, his life will be a disaster. I loved that guy, but he couldn't get along with his dad. He couldn't get along with his son. The son had to leave home work someplace else. Dad knew that by the time I figured that out, I'd probably be married, have three or four kids, no education, and be stuck. I figured this out just two years ago. Say that he again. Got you just figured this out away. two years ago. Yeah, just two years ago, I was writing some stuff down and putting some stuff together, and it hit me like a ton of brick. Dad was wise. So we get to Michigan. Transmission fell out of the moving van in Chicago. Stop for a moment here. I, wanna, I don't want the people to miss this. Your dad saw something in you. Absolutely. That you didn't see. Absolutely. You're chasing something you love because that's all you knew. And yet he saw something bigger. And people, I want you to listen to this. That one decision that my grandfather made for his son, who wanted nothing to do at that moment with his dad and the decision that his dad was making, means I wouldn't be here and neither would you and this church wouldn't be happening. That's right. That one decision of a father seeing the value in a child, knowing his child is completely against what his dad's thinking. And the, and, and the dominoes would change forever. Children, I, I want you to listen to this. Please, kids, listen to this. And, and all, you, all you dads, you can tithe later. Um, but, because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> that was actually funny. Um, <laughs> but, but here's the deal is, kids, I understand parent-child relationships, and, and there can be those confrontations. I get it. But, and your parents aren't perfect. I understand that as well. But they love you with everything they have. And there's something about the years that they've lived. And some of the decisions you may not see or understand, they have your best interest. And they're making decisions because they see your potential. You may not see it now, 
But if you keep trying to get them to give in and they do, you're selling out for less than what God has for your life. Trust your mom and dads. I, I, I love every dad in this room and I'm so proud of you. I recognize, man, you're, you're not perfect, neither am I. But one thing I've seen over and over in this church in 22 years, how much you love your kids. And kids, I, I, I want to encourage you, trust them. Trust them. They really are making decisions on your best. It may not seem it in the moment, but one day you're going to look back and go, wow, I am so grateful for my grandfather making that decision because I love what I do today. And I wouldn't even be here because he would have never met my mom. This is what I want you to hear. Listen how he met my mom. This is just a hoot. Go. We got into Millington, Michigan, December the 1st, Saturday, 1956, 6 o'clock, with the word that our moving van was in Chicago where the transmission had gone out of it and it'd be there for five days. Dad had to scatter the family. Took my two sisters over to this house. I drove my wife's future wife's picture on the mantle. I asked, who is that? And they told me. I saw her in the choir on Sunday. I met her when her dad let her out of his store at 9 o'clock on Saturday, and we sat in the car and talked for two hours. Started going steady a week later, got engaged three weeks after that, and we've had seven children and 64 years of marriage. <laughs> I... I, I would love to hear Peyton, because the, the Peyton that you guys described, remember the, the, the grandfather he just told you about? He, he's real, the stoic is a good word, very hard, made a great heart in that stuff. I love it when he says, ah, you'll get out there and meet a girl, fall in love. Yep. I'm sure he wasn't thinking three weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> just, that is just a hoot. So, um, so three weeks, you guys are engaged. But you're going to take a little hiatus. There's a, there's a little moment that you get engaged. The wedding bells are going to have to be put off. Why is that? Well, I joined the Army uh, Reserves in January. Graduated the 5th of June. was in Fort Linwood on the 8th of June. So we got married when I got back from all of that. I, I just, I think that's great. Um, what, a, what a cool thing. Uh, Man, you were trusting her after three weeks and then going off the military for a year? Yep. Wow. I she raised nine I children. Wouldn't. She raised <laughs> you seven and our adopt one of me. That's awesome. Okay, so let, let's set up because I'm going to come to something really deep here in a moment here. But you're, you're in Michigan. You and mom are married. Uh, many of you in the Christian world have heard of Zondervans. And... Uh, uh, you have you have a connection to Zondervan's. This is that one of those moments you started speaking, and my ears went up. And went what? So it was my privilege to be in Bible study with the original Zondervan brothers for two years in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the third floor of their building. That is so cool. Tuesday mornings. The actual great. brothers of Zondervan's. You mm -hmm. were in a Bible study with them for two yep. years. I love that. And then. Part of education and growing up, you had a chance uh, to hook up with a former president. Well, I was in a political science class when we lived there in the same town where I was doing the Bible study with them. And uh, political class, science class in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And one night, Gerald Ford was the guy for the evening. We spent three hours with him. That's awesome. Now, speaking of presidents, this is something you've never heard me share from the pulpit. 
My grandfather, my mom's dad, was a professional semi-pro baseball catcher, okay, in, in Iowa. Des Moines, Iowa. The pitcher he caught for was Ronald Reagan, who was a disc jockey in Des Moines, Iowa. That's just so cool. I, I think about that. Now, he also, for some of the older crowd would know this, you share with me another pitcher that was quite famous in the pro world. Well, he caught one baseball game, he said, of Bob Feller. Yeah. Said his hand was swollen up, he couldn't use it for a week. Bob Feller could knock a guy down with a baseball. He never said that about Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so, um, but I, I just thought that was neat. Now, one last little thing uh, that I want you to touch base on, back to the General Motors, the, the founding, if you will. Yeah, when I got back from the Army, um, of course, Judy went to work while I was in the Army. Um, I don't know if the people here have ever heard of Charles Stuart Mott, but he was a big part of General Motors. He and Durant were the first two partners. And uh, he would be on the board of directors until, I believe, 1973, shortly before he died, as a member of the board of directors. Uh, I married his receptionist. That's so cool. <laughs> I just love that. Just some of, that's one of those things when you shared that, I was like, whoa. I mean, that's great. I love that stuff. Well, I just want you to know that my receptionist is Barbie Rosendahl. Come on. <laughs> She's awesome. All of this is going on in your life. And you, you worked for General Motors for three years, love for cars. But then there's this call. It is not going away. Walk me through the events of that. Um, I've seen God's hand so many times in my life. You know, growing up as a child in all those different social strata that I told you about in different parts of the country. Um, then the Army Reserve Unit that I belonged to was a transportation unit that some general had dreamed up that turned out to be a flop. But he decided it was a transportation unit that would pick up nerve gas, for example, at Dow Chemical and boats, airplanes, whatever, we'd take it all the way to Korea, for example. Well, all the various branches of the Army had their own transportation to perfection. I don't know why he thought that would work. But our summer camp was on a ship in the harbor down in New Orleans, Louisiana, in February. So one time they'd send you a deal, telegram, we'd have to walk off the job. The employers knew this. You be in New Orleans in 48 hours, you fly. You be in New Orleans in 48 hours, you drive. This particular one, you drive. So I started making some phone calls. Everybody else was already getting underway. But Jimmy Hyde, out of Port Huron, Michigan, I could ride with him. He's a company clerk. So my dad took, us over, took me over there because Judy needed a car to take the baby to the doctor. Introduced himself as Peyton Loy, and Jimmy said, well, I'm superintendent of the Baptist church here in, in uh, Port Huron. And uh, he and dad talked a little bit, so... At that time, I was smoking, which Judy said if she'd known that, she wouldn't have married me. I also used a word now and then I shouldn't. I was being flamboyant, non-preacher's kid. Jimmy Hyde was a pain in the rear, all the way down there and all the way back. Um, 
What I did down in New Orleans was I took all the travel money and all the salary and bought cigarettes and cigars and tobacco for my machine. Spent the whole thing on that. Then on the way home, he got to me and I decided to quit smoking. So I walk in the house, I put it all on the table. Judy's mad anyway. I said, I quit smoking. She's not going to see that. I said, no, watch this. I called up my friend Richard Horton. I said, you quit smoking yet? He said, no. I said, get yourself over here. I'm going to make you a happy man. And I told Judy, I said, we're going to go to a prayer meeting Wednesday night. And she said, I believe that when I see it, but we did. And uh, a few weeks later, dad district superintendent was at the house and I was doing some piece of foolishness and he looked down the table. Now, by the way, Dr. Howard Burden was five foot four. He drove a Plymouth Valiant with the front seat mounted on two before so he could see over the windshield. No kidding. And I'm tall and just got out of service and I'm drilling troops down in Flint Monday nights. Son, why are you in the ministry? Well, I had a good answer for that. I never got a call. And that's probably all the way I said it. He said, that makes me sick. He said, what you're saying is that until God takes a light like he did Paul and slaps you on the ground, you don't have to. He said, son, when God shows you, and this was only meant for me, it meant nothing to anybody else in the room. When God shows you a need and opens your eyes and tells you you can do something about it, you got all the call you're ever going to get. Yeah. I started stammering at that point. Say, say that one more time. Nice when and When God slow. shows you a need and shows you you can do something about it, you got all the call you're ever going to get. I love that. I love those words. It was for me. It wasn't for anybody else in the room because it, it slammed home. And uh, I stammered something about having a wife and some kid, and he said, anybody ever talk to you about student appointments? No. In the conversation, I'll be in your office tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. I skipped AC spark plug, General Motors, went to see him, and I was in Hope and Edenville four months later. I'd worked off the whole year's course of study for license to preach. And I was in my first appointment. That was a God thing. How, how, many, of the, how many of the kids, how many of my brothers and sisters were born at that time? Um, we, had, we had one, and one was going to be there very shortly. All right. So is this the house that needed heating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I burned my first parcel down. Tell, tell that story. This is great. Well, we moved into this old house. Um, Carlos Page, a district superintendent, said, Glenn, when we lived in that house, we had plastic stapled to the inside, storm windows on the outside, a heater in every room, and we were still froze to death. You're the only preacher that ever got it warm. But the guy in the neighborhood, I said, my water pipes are flown up. He said, take a torch, lay it on your deal, on your chest, and then crawl under the edge of the house. You'll see the pipes right up there. And he didn't tell me anything about the house was packed solid with straw. I climbed, I mean, I started crawling in the house, and the house went, whoosh. <laughs> Judy said, it's smoking up here. I said, it's smoking down here. <laughs> I, I could go on. I want to I fast forward here. But there are so many of those stories. I want you to hear this, and, and I want to I restate that statement. When you see a need... And you can do something about it. And God shows you you can do something about it. And God shows you. We fight that. Yeah. That, let me say it again. When you see a need and God shows you you can do something about it, that's all the call you're going to get. And many of you know that this church is about sending, not about seating. And, and I've said this before. 
COVID exposed us in so many ways. And there's so many things about this church after 21 years, and I'm going into 22 years now, we're not going back. We have people going, I can't wait to get back. We're not getting back to anything. I'm not. There are tens of thousands of people in Sioux Falls that would die and go to hell right now if God came back. They matter to Jesus. And I'm not afraid to say this. If they don't matter to you, you may not really know him. And, and I'm just being honest. Because I don't know how you're going to stand before God and go, thank you for letting me in. I'm so glad I didn't have to do anything for you down there. It doesn't work that way. There's nothing in the Bible that supports that. There's way too much taking in our world. There's way too much. We're going to talk about this. It's going to get a little bit personal because I want you to listen to my father here. My dad, I, I could have grew up in Winter, South Dakota, but I love what he said. You wouldn't exist. I'd have never met your mother. My dad could have worked for General Motors and maybe been one of the really high uppity ones. And the reason I say it, for a lot of reasons, he doesn't need to go there. But just because of his entrance and his work and those things, there's so many things that my life would have been dramatically different. I could have had everything. We, we laugh about it to think about it, but remember what he left because of this little short guy that looked at him and said, you have a need. God shows you a need. And you, God shows you can do something about it. Four months later, he's in full-time ministry. He's in this little tiny church, little tiny house. You're freezing. You're in the state of Michigan. They would eventually then have to stay in a place where it was rat-infested. And that's another whole story. And when you hear the story of what my dad went through and all the things for the sake of the kingdom of God that lost people would come to Christ, it's pretty crazy amazing. He could have been comfortable and I could have grew up like that, which means I may not even know Jesus today. It's not about, it's not about being comfortable. It's not about having a retirement. It's not about having multiple homes. It's not about driving the right car. You can have the whole world, Jesus said, and yet lose your salvation. This country chases a lot of the world, very little of the word. We're very up on the things that we shouldn't be up on, and we're very down on the things we should be up on. There's a lot of people who sit in the church and have no clue what the Bible says. There's something wrong with that. That's why I'm doing these classes. I am very, very focused about helping you grow, understand what the New Testament is, the Old Testament is, what it means to walk, be in Christ, what it means to live like Jesus, because that's what we're supposed to be living when we really get salvation and what it's about and make a difference in our world. It's not about having a church membership. I have so many meetings where I've heard people sit in the church for 40 years and they get mad over church carpet colors. They get mad over all the stuff that doesn't matter. They get mad over the music style. They get mad over this. And all of I'm hearing is I'm hearing about you. Being a Christian is to talk about the things of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Christians don't fight to get their way. They surrender their way to follow the way. And now they want to serve and be in the world. That's what the Bible says. And, and if you disagree with me, I'm not trying to put you in defense. You just don't know what the Bible says. We're to die to ourselves, we're to gain, and God can't raise up 
a corpse that's still breathing. We have to die to ourselves, our way. That's what the Bible says. We have a new nature now. We have a new authority called the Word of God. That authority becomes, if you will, our roadmap by which we live because this is not our home. We die to this place because we want to be right with Jesus and we want to walk with him on the streets of gold. I mean, that's, that's, where, that's what it's about. But there's way too much of, of people sitting on boards that don't even know Jesus and, and, they're, and they're fighting for the things that don't even matter. And they're fighting among themselves. And, and the unsaved world is going, why would I want to be a part of that? And so I, I'm sharing with you, COVID helped expose it. So here's my dad, 62 years of ministry. And I, I want you to listen to this very carefully. I'm not afraid to say it. This may be the last time that my dad will ever be on this stage. I'm very aware of the brevity of life. I got a little emotional when I was coming out because I was thinking, this may be the last time that I get to actually be in my dad's presence, this side of heaven. Some of you older crowd, ah, he's 56, what does he know? Well then, now you can't say that. 62 years of ministry, He's given his entire life to it and laid it down. I have been blessed and enriched in growing up in a home that had people always seem to be living in it. I'm just being up front. We, I remember moving around rooms. I remember being one of four in one room. Double bunk bed, Steve slept on top, I slept in the bottom, and Brian and Greg slept in a double bed in the same room because that's the parsonage we lived in. I grew up with not much financially. Didn't know that growing up because I felt like I grew up as rich as you can imagine. People in and out of our house, we always had plenty to eat and I had no idea how that even happened and I found that out later. And I'm one of the smaller ones in my family. I've told you that. So when you ate, you ate. You didn't look around because if you did, someone stole your food. That's not a joke. My, my mom had no education that I knew of till after I graduated high school. My mom would work all night, literally all night. Breakfast would be ready in the morning. We'd get up. She'd sleep during the day. And when we come home, there'd be a snack after school. And she'd help us with our schoolwork and that stuff. And we'd clean up. And after she'd put us to bed, she'd go back to work all night. That's what she did. And then in 1983, when I went to, after I graduated, actually, it's a weird story, but the real short of it is, is I graduated, and two weeks later, they moved to Texas and left me in Nebraska. I'm not even sure what that meant. Um, <laughs> but but uh, they went down there. My dad went back to school. After having the largest active church in the state of Nebraska, he left there and went back to school because he said, I've, I have so much more to learn. And my mom then became, went to uh, nursing school graduated top of her class, and then went to, got her RN when she moved back to Nebraska uh, and, and graduated top of her class. And uh, just all of those things in my life, when I look back and think how rich I was from the world standpoint, how poor we were probably physically, but how rich we were. And, and the things that we have and, and why this is so personal to me because it's how I grew up. This isn't a job for me. 
But here's my dad, roughly almost 82, coming on to 82 years age, 62 years of ministry. And here's the question I want you to ask, Dad. You say it all the time. It's a quick trip. But your heart is deeply concerned for the Christian church in this country. Yeah, and we have to go back to something you came across just a few moments ago. Those of you who don't know this, um, been doing some analyzation for a couple of conferences for a few years. The Christian church is being erased in America today, literally being erased. Methodists are dropping 80,000 a year and all the other mainline denominations in the same boat. A recent Gallup poll said they asked this question across America. Do you believe there's anything such as a relevant God of the general population? In one decade, that jumped 10 percentage points. No. We've lost our effect in most communities. Sunday, Wednesday, when I was a child in South Dakota, it was respected. There is no respect now. They've taken it. We gave it to them. They do everything on Sundays and on Wednesdays because it doesn't compete with the job, and we, we just go along with it. We are losing the game. And our new vice president and two congressmen have said this. I've said them several times. The Christian church is white supremacy. It's got to be eliminated. We're under fire. Now, the reason we're in this mess, let's go back to what he said a few moments ago. If you go back and read Luke 15, it's all about saving lost people. If you are the church, the church is not about you. You are the church that's about lost people. Go back to Luke 15 and read it because this is what he said. He's got a lost sheep, the shepherd does. He goes and looks for it, and when he finds it, he rejoices. There's more rejoicing in heaven over the one that was lost that is found than the 99 who are already in. If you've got children, you know that. My wife and I have seven. We love them all unreservedly. But when one of them is in trouble, that's the one that gets all our thought and all of our prayers. True or false? Absolutely. Now, coming back to this, there's an illustration I want to bring up to you that's very important to me. How many of you remember the movie with Kevin Costner called The Guardian? He is a mean, hard-driving director of a swimming school to teach him to dive. He gets a very brash young man in who's only brash because he's really good. Their enemies in a love-hate relationship till he graduates. Then they end up on the same crew and there's a bond form where they have a oneness and a mutual respect and I mean absolutely the best team there ever was. Then Costner makes a mistake and he quits. As he's leaving the room, the young man who loves him so much says, I gotta ask you a question. What is your number? Costner turns around real slow and says, 22. He said, I thought it would have been a lot higher. Now listen to this. 22 is the number I lost. That's the only number that counts. Why doesn't the church get that straight? It's not about us. It's about all the lost people out there. Are we getting the job done? When Keith came to this town, he was told by somebody that it was overchurched. So he went on a kind of a drive, if I remember this. I hope I'm doing it accurately. He called every church in town, found out what the capacity was, how many seats. And 24,000 out of 124,000 could be in church if every seat was full in every worship service. So much for being overchurched. But listen to this. 
you've grown in 20 years from 120 to almost 200,000. That pool of unchurched out there is huge compared to what it was 20 years ago. We're still not getting the job done. We don't have the burden to drive for the lost people. I got to do more at 82. This is my attitude. This is my understanding of me. I hate sitting in classrooms and I like doing all the other stuff. So one year license to preach, then five year course of study, then four years of advance. That means for the 10 years I was in Michigan, I was under formal education even though I wasn't in school. 10 to 12 books, then go to seminaries for lectures and testing in the summertime. 23 years into the ministry, I was allowed to go back to seminary for four years. Fantastic. But then I loved school and I couldn't get enough of it. In the meantime, I had taken so many courses on marriage counseling and stuff like that, that when Nebraska Western, or Western Nebraska College on Scotts Bluff wanted somebody to teach psychology, they looked at everything and said, you have the equivalent of a master's in psychology. You got more psychological stuff than most of our master's degrees do. So I got to teach psychology for two years, a fantastic time. Now, in addition to that, for 38 years under appointment, my dad said this. When you go to a church, you have said to God and had it signed, sealed, and delivered by an ecclesiastical body, you will feed that flock. You're going to answer for every sermon you give. So I made sure on my shelves that I had three commentaries from the, from the conservative side recognized by the academics and the liberal side, three liberals recognized by the other side. In other words, well done word, for example, out of Waco, Texas, 40-some volumes, it's conservative but recognizes liberals as being good stuff. And every time I had a difficult passage, I would research that because I believe that I'm going to stand before the throne of grace and answer for what I tell the people. Now, all that put together, you want to know what? I know pitifully little. Those who studied these things said that Einstein, when he died, he used 2% of his brain. Don't have a heart attack. You aren't any further along than he was, and I'm not either. And sitting in his classroom again for a week, two weeks ago with Dr. Leonard Sweet, I couldn't believe all the stuff that he was handing me that was new and thrilling and wonderful. I wish you had that kind of a craving. There's a law of the universe that affects everything around us. That car you drove here in, the suit of clothes you got on your body, a lot of us know this. You're going to grow to a certain point. When you stop growing, you start dying. That's true of all relationships. If you're in a marriage that's not growing, it's dying. Get at it. Your relationship with the Lord, you're either getting closer or further away. You're not staying where you're at. And I have a hunger. I want you to have that same hunger because you can't get enough of it. That's what's wrong with the church today. We don't have the burden for people. And what I've been sharing with this little church that I've been, I've been preaching to a church from my study down in Florida for four months over the internet. I will be thrilled when I start seeing Christian people who allow God's calendar to interfere with theirs. Think about that for a moment. How many families out there? The lake home, the kids' sports. I mean, stuff that isn't going to amount to a hill of beans 50 years down the road. And God called them to do something. I haven't got time. Yeah, you do. You're going to do what you want to do in every case. So 
That's my stance. I know pitifully little. I got a long ways to go. I think one night you and I were in a small group here in Sioux Falls. And we were looking at some passages we both knew by heart. And I think maybe five minutes apart, I said, I never saw that before. And a few minutes later, you said the same thing about another verse. I don't know about the rest of you. Please don't think that education is accumulation of data. Accumulation, education is process. It's growing, it's learning, it's being usable. I love that. I always think of education like, like food, you know. Um, I love new taste. I love when, you, when your palate, you know, grabs something and you, you can't wait to share it. And you tell some man, have you ever had the steak at this place? Oh, my goodness. Delighted. Wow. Yeah, and that's the way I look at the, the, the Word of God. I just, it's such a savoring moment. I know that, that this can be harsh, but we, we've got to become a people that quit looking for what tells us what we want to hear and what we like. We got to quit looking for that church that, that well, you know, we, we, we want to hear what we want to hear. We just tell us we're doing good, encourage us in that stuff. I feel like I do that all the time here. I love you with all my heart. But how do we call ourselves a Christ follower, a believer, and yet we have neighbors that don't know Christ? We have friends at work that don't know Jesus. How do we do that? How do we label ourselves? How do we, how do we say, I, I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful taker. How do, we, how do we justify that in our spirit? What I fear is, is that we've gotten, we have drifted so far that there's some of you in this room right now. That there's some in this room, you're already deciding we're, we're going to look for a different church. You don't know me. You've never spent time with me. Never had a conversation. 62 years of ministry. But you know. And there lies the problem. I have people who, oh, we, we don't agree with that. I'm glad you don't agree. Great. That's a chance to grow. But you'll walk and go somewhere else. Why? Because I need to go to a place where I agree, which means I want to go to a place where I never grow. I want to go to a place where I'm comfortable. Chances are, if you disagree with me, you haven't even opened up the word and don't even have a verse that you could even support your argument. See, I'm not afraid to go there because people go, well, your, your church is going to die. Then let it die. It needs to be dead. It needs to be dead. Because I agree with my grandfather and I agree with my dad. A pastor isn't worth his salt who's not willing to plow close to the corn. I don't want to be a pastor that grows a big church where everybody likes me. I want to do everything I can where I'm sharing truth that you would be so hungry for it because you love him. And, and that's my heart. Can we come at a different slant just for a minute on the same subject? I just feel like we should. 
Probably a lot of people here know that Brian is serving the Methodist Church in O'Neill out of the house he grew up in. When he got down there and he wanted to go get Methodist credentials, the very first thing he had to do was go to the License for Free School seminar in Denver. I didn't tell him what he's going to run into because I knew, but I wanted him to experience it without being prepared. They continually told him all week, your sermons are too harsh, there's too much guilt, you've got to make people feel good, give them warm fuzzies, make them want to come back. Now, if you understand things, churches are spiritual hospitals. Pastors are spiritual doctors. So let's flip it over. I go to a doctor, had some chest pains. He put me three, four hours of testing. He says, you're fine, go on home. So I'm getting dressed. He left the door open. I heard him tell the nurse that. And she said, doctor, I saw those x-rays. He can be dead in six months. Yeah, but he's feeling so good. I don't want to mess up his day. I'm not going to keep going to that jerk. But we choose preachers that way. Get somebody to make you feel good and warm fuzzies. Now, what we preach is dangerous and it's tough. You always plowed close to the corner, and I praise God for that. And when you plow close to the corner and preach for decision, we have two things we can do when you preach for decision. All of you know this, we make boo-boos. Anybody here don't make a boo-boo? Yeah. When you make a boo-boo, you got two choices. The hard one and the necessary and the good one is go to the mirror, look and say, hey, stupid, you blew it. Forgive yourself, change direction, and do it right. But if you're not going to do that, now the integral part of you, you got to come up with something you can live with, so you're going to prop up the bad decision. And the worse it was, the more you will prop it up. And when we watch people, I had a parish where a man became my chairman of my board. We roofed his barn together. We worked on cars together. We decided that in retirement, we were going to build woody wagons. So we traveled over the state of South Dakota, Nebraska, brought three of them home that we were going to reduce in, in retirement. He got closer and closer and closer, and then all of a sudden it stopped. His former buddies that he always sat down at the bar with sat down with him and said, Denny, you're going to make a choice. You can keep hanging out with the preacher and playing that religious stuff, or you can come back to being one of us. And I watched him fall away. There is pain in that. I mean pain. But I wouldn't change my own. You know why? I believe with all of my heart that there's a day of judgment coming. I don't know where Denny finally ended up before he died. But the one thing I do know, he wasn't going to be standing beside the throne of grace and look at me and say, he never told me. You got that? And even though there was pain in that, I wouldn't stop my preaching. I wouldn't stop preaching for decision. Amen. I would not go where I went, even though there was pain in it. The pain has to be there because I love people. But that's the nature of what we do. Why are you in church? To have your feathers smooth? Or are you here because you love God and you want to get a little closer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want to get a little closer, you thank God for the kind of ministry you have going on here. I want to invite the team to come out. And while they're coming out, I want to, I want to ask my mom to stand. I want you to welcome her as well, if you would. Mom, would you stand?
I'm so glad. I'm so glad that my grandpa knew what you didn't know. And I'm so glad I get to be a pastor today because you, you and mom. Outside of Jesus, outside of Jesus, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. It is a painful journey. Yep. And I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to say it in 21 years in this city. I've definitely made decisions I, I would love to remake. Um, I get that. It has been a very painful journey in a lot of ways because people you love are no longer in your life or you're watching them where they've walked away. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the no. world. No, sir. I just wouldn't. Thanks, Dad. I love every one of you more, more than you may even know. I love what I do. I know there's rumors at times where people going, oh, Pastor Keith, we just moved and... We, uh, we wanted to downsize because every decision we're making right now, my wife and I, is about legacy. So we're really trying to downsize in some things. And so we moved. And when that came out, we had a few people going, oh, you're moving, you're leaving. You said you never would. And I said, I ain't going anywhere. I mean, I, I, mean, I I'm, used to get gas at one station. I get another gas station. It doesn't mean I'm leaving town. Um, I, I just moved, and we're, we're, we're just trying to really downsize our lives because there's things we're trying to do. Am I looking to no longer be the lead pastor of this church? Yeah, but I'm never leaving it. This is my home. I hope to always be the founding pastor and pouring in the next generation until a day I breathe my last. I'm going to give my heart and call to the call and the heart that gave that to me. I love being a pastor. And I love you, and I love this church. We got work to do in the city. And I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to lead you in that work to help lost people come to Christ. I think God's got a very cool, awesome, special church here called Celebrate. And, and you're the coolest people I know. And I, I love you. You come. You've been with me for a long time, many of you. you you've been with me, extended grace when you felt I've faltered. I feel that same has been shared and extended to you. But we're going to join arms and keep doing battle because there's thousands of people that need Jesus and it's worth it. One day we'll be home. One day we'll be home. But let's take as many as we can mm -hmm. and be the church and where God placed us. Amen to that. Would you do me a favor and thank my dad one more time for being here. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with your friends. It helps so much. You know, you can click the share button, take a screenshot and share it on your social stories and tag us at Celebrate Church. For more content from Celebrate and to connect with us, go to celebrate.church. We love you and we believe in you. 
God bless.